BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQBD Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. It's been exactly three weeks since Election Day, and only last night did the GSA chief say she'll release the post-election funds needed for Joe Biden to begin his transition to the presidency. The news came just after Michigan certified its election, allocating its 16 electoral votes to Biden and ending President Trump's campaign to overturn the results there. But while Trump's political and legal strategy appear to be coming apart, is our nation going to be all right? We've invited law and democracy experts Larry Diamond and Ned Foley back to forum to reflect on the toll the last few weeks has taken on our nation. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Two months ago, law and democracy experts Ned Foley and Larry Diamond came on forum to share their concerns about the toxic political environment the election was taking place in and that U.S. law could be inadequate to deal with a contested election. Some of the transition chaos Foley and Diamond expected has come to pass, plus a whole lot more. In this hour of forum, we get their take on the damage being done in this post-election period and how worried we should be about it. Ned Foley is Professor of Constitutional Law and Director of the Election Law Program at Ohio State University's Moritz College of the Law. His most recent book is Presidential Elections and Majority Rule, The Rise, Demise, and Potential Restoration of the Jeffersonian Electoral College. Thanks so much for joining us, Ned Foley. Yes, it's good to be back with you. Larry Diamond is also back with a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Freeman Spokley Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. His most recent book is Ill Winds, Saving Democracy from Russian Rage, Chinese Ambition and American Complacency. So glad to have you back as well, Larry Diamond. Uh, good morning, Mina, and good morning uh, to Ned. And Larry Diamond, I want to play a little bit of this prediction you made on Forum back in September. Here it is. I'm predicting now uh, at 1026 a.m. Uh, on this Thursday that uh, Trump will claim he was elected 
if he uh, gets a, a majority of the votes that were not cast by mail-in ballots in these states that give him an electoral college victory. And if that claim is made on grounds that don't involve close contestation uh, over you know, narrow, narrow margins, and the Republican legislatures nevertheless cave into his pressure to give him their delegates, then we have, I think, a constitutional crisis of calamitous proportions. Okay, so Larry Diamond, that was a prediction you made in September about the election. And I mean, things ended up being both worse and better than you predicted. I mean, Trump did declare victory despite losing, though not based on in-person ballots. He just declared it broadly. Uh, But thankfully, it's looking unlikely we'll get that constitutional calamity that you were worried about. So is the country all right, Larry Diamond? I mean, how are you feeling three weeks out from Election Day? Well, uh, Mina, I think that um, when the history of these few weeks is written, I believe um, we will learn and conclude many things. One is that um, we dodged a bullet, frankly. Uh, Trump has behaved in exactly the authoritarian grasping and, uh, you know, uh, damaging fashion uh, that I think it was easy to anticipate he would. Uh, but fortunately, the margins were not close enough to really facilitate it. There were too many states uh, that he lost uh, that would have had to be swung for such a strategy to really work. And uh, fortunately, a growing number of uh, Republicans, uh, such as very recently, for example, Chris Christie, who's been close to him for some time now, uh, refused to go along. And the other thing I think that the history will show, Mina, that is not really visible now, because everything I said so far has been visible, is that a number of civil society organizations um, of committed Democrats across party lines, so Democrats with a small d, people in the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, nonpartisans, academics, uh, civil society activists, former government officials prepared for this months in advance and I think neutralized some of these strategies that might otherwise have um, uh, have threatened our democracy. Well, what about you, Ned Foley? I mean, it, it sounds like um, Larry Diamond feels like, yes, we did avert a disaster, but can you reflect on where we are now, exactly three weeks after this election? Curious what you think. Sure. Well, I essentially agree with Larry that it's both a good news and a bad news story. Um, The good news is that we were resilient, in part because some individuals, uh, like the Secretary of State of Georgia, for example, you know, stood up to the kind of pressure that President Trump put to him. And also the member of the Michigan uh, State Canvassing Board yesterday did did as well. And so, you know, but for a couple of individuals acting a little bit differently, the narrative might have unfolded in in, in different ways. Um, but I, but as Larry said, there were, you know, larger cultural forces within society that probably helped those individuals do the right thing at the moment. Yes. Um, but as Larry also said, you know, it, it was not close enough to steal 
Um, but, you know, President Trump did attempt to steal it despite it being out of reach. Um, but that does make you worry that if it had been a little bit closer, you know, could it have actually been within his grasp? To yes. And he's still sort of continuing. I mean, I'd love to break down a couple of things that happened and just get your reaction. So first, Ned Foley, I mean, did you foresee this legal strategy? I mean, I guess for lack of a better word that they've pursued of claiming election problems without evidence or basis. I mean, even though, as Larry Diamond pointed out, that the margins weren't close, right? Did you did you see that playing out? And what was your reaction to it as it has played out so far? Well, a version of it, I, I wrote an, uh, a paper back in 2019 that um, w- was fear based on President Trump's reaction to the midterms of 2018. I, I was afraid that he might try to claim uh, fraud when it didn't exist, based on the mechanics of the vote by mail process, which even before the pandemic could set up this dynamic where uh, ballots cast by mail might be counted after the the in-person ballots were. And although there wouldn't be a factual basis for claiming that the vote counting had gone wrong, you know, uh, President Trump could try to spin out a public narrative that was contrary to the truth. Um, You know, I didn't think that it would be quite as... uh, brazen as it turned out to be, quite as divorced from, you know, the underlying reality of, of the voting process, in partly having to do with margins. I was fearful that, you know, something like this might have been plausible in a single state, right. you know, if the margin was 5,000, but we were talking six states, we were talking 150,000 votes in, in Michigan. So no, I didn't foresee it exactly the way it, it turned out to be, but there were signs, there were worrisome signs ahead of time. Yes. And Larry Diamond, I mean, so, so far it's failed. Should we find that reassuring or could this be a roadmap for a better equipped losing candidate, maybe only one state in contention, you know, to use in the future? Well, I think you've captured the balance of uh, hope and fear, uh, Mina. On the one hand, I think that we can breathe a sigh of relief that uh, Republicans didn't go along. On the other hand, I think we really need to be sobered by this experience as I was sobered by Ned's original article in the 2019 Loyola Law Review, which prompted me to reach out to him and led to our collaboration. We have a massive loophole here in the integrity of our presidential electoral process or a series of them when as Ned is noted, you look at the uh, more than century old and inscrutable Electoral Count Act, and we need to fix these loopholes. I mean, I would obviously favor getting rid of the Electoral College. I think there are ways of reforming it uh, to diminish the problem. Mm. But the ability of a state legislature to simply override the will of the people is a problem that I think needs to be discussed in the country and and addressed in the country. So um, I think that on the one hand, we should be grateful that a growing number of Republicans are abandoning uh, Trump's uh, campaign to do something undemocratic, to essentially steal the Electoral College. On the other hand, we have a problem here that could lead to a future crisis 
or vulnerability. And now is the time to address it, not exactly four years from now. Yes, and and I do want to get into what may be some new safeguards and and to actually talk a little bit about the drama that unfolded in Michigan. But first, Larry Diamond, I have to ask you, I mean, you're talking about being grateful that the Republicans are coming or uh, seem to be abandoning, you know, their support or basically their silence around Trump's attempt to overturn the election. But I mean, should we be grateful? Honestly, it just feels like pretty shocking, actually, to have seen so many Republican leaders be so quiet in the face of Trump's intransigence. Yes, spineless uh, is a word that uh, I used recently in an interview. And uh, it shouldn't have come to this. It shouldn't have taken this long. Uh, And of course, it's not just um, his uh, effort to try and steal the Electoral uh, College about which they have been silent. It's his ongoing uh, extreme abuse of power and corruption for which there's been very little uh, Republican denunciation um, or effort to constrain, Uh, you know, with a few exceptions like Mitt Romney, who I think has been quite eloquent from time to time, and Jeff Flake, who wound up leaving the Senate, not running for re-election because he realized that once he denounced Trump's authoritarianism from the floor of the Senate, you know, he was basically in 2017, he was basically signing his political death notice. So um, I I think we're really going to have to look back and uh, deconstruct this period in a uh, pretty rigorous and uh, demanding way. And then looking forward, Mina, there's the problem that this guy is probably going to start running for president again the minute he leaves the White House. And what will that do to the Republican Party and the fear of legislators, House and particularly Senate, but governor, governors as well, that if they speak out against him, you know, he may nominate some extremists to run against them in a Republican primary. At some point, uh, people need to do what Margaret Chase Smith did uh, with regard to Joe McCarthy uh, in the 1950s and uh, call out what she called with respect to uh, McCarthy, the, the four horsemen of calumny and just denounce this kind of uh, yes. uh, undemocratic rhetoric and behavior. Yes, more with Larry Diamond and Ned Foley after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The Biden team is set to begin its formal transition as early as today after the White House decided yesterday to release the funds and resources needed for the handoff. But it's been a long, chaotic and disturbing journey to this point. 
And President Trump is still saying he'll fight to overturn the results. We're talking with Ned Foley, professor of constitutional law and director of the election law program at Ohio State University's Moritz College of Law, and also Larry Diamond, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. And we want to hear from you. How concerned have you been about Trump's multi-state campaign to overturn the election results? Would you call this an attempted coup? And do you think our institutions held up? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. With your questions and reactions for Ned Foley and Larry Diamond, you can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And Ned Foley, I want to ask sort of a similar question to you just about how the Republicans have responded to Trump's behavior post-election. I mean, you talked about how corrosive and damaging it can be uh, for a party to go along with behavior such as this. Like, what what aspects of it are most dangerous to you? Yes, well, I think Larry mentioned uh, McCarthyism, and I think that's important. I've been thinking along the same lines in the last few days. Uh, you know, I, th- I think what we saw was an election process version of McCarthyism. Um, and, the, you know, the pathology of McCarthyism is, it, and a, a famous political scientist historian named Richard Hofstetter talked about the paranoid style in American politics. There's moments in American history where the public as a whole kind of gets gripped uh, in a kind of um, uh paranoia again that's not fact-based and so that a lot of these claims about this nationwide conspiracy of voter fraud that Rudy Giuliani was talking about in his press conferences none of that was reality based and it can it remind me uh of what I've studied in terms of the history books about McCarthyism and that's Mm -hmm. really dangerous and what's particularly dangerous is when it gets applied to the voting process um you know we've had difficult moments in American history of different types. Obviously, McCarthyism was one very difficult moment. And going back to the 19th century, we've had some ugly periods of election contestation, but we never had the two combined, I don't think, in the way that we had it this year. So I think the the threat that we saw this year was particularly disturbing to me. Again, thankfully, it was not successful, in part because it wasn't close. But um, I do think, as Larry said, we have to study how is it that we got ourselves into a place of McCarthyism-like lack of evidence combined with political or election contestation. And it puts a, you know, I'm not an elected politician myself, so, you know, I I, I don't think we saw a lot of profiles in courage. But, you know, the, the, the party, particularly in the Senate, you know, there were some voices like Senator Romney, Senator Murkowski, but not enough, fast enough. And we need to figure out, you know, whether that's an institutional failing or a cultural failing or how we, han- or, you know, how we handle this so that we could withstand a similar threat in the future. You know, Ned Foley, there was something that you said two months ago that really stayed with me, and that was that you were worried that the system will work well enough to give us an outcome that is genuinely the choice of the voters, but that there will be so much doubt and distrust that people wouldn't believe it. We now have polls showing that more than half of Republicans think Trump Trump rightfully won the election. So in a sense, hasn't that happened? Well, yes and no. I mean, I'm very worried about those public opinion polls that you mentioned. Um, Again, we need more voices 
to speak up, you know, um, one senator, Republican from West Virginia, um, yesterday said she acknowledged that it was an authentic victory by Biden based on the evidence that we need now have. I think Senator Larry Alexander from um, Tennessee said something essentially this similar. We need more members of the Republican Party to tell their own base and their own voters because President Trump won't do this. So institutionally, other Republicans have to say, you know, this was a valid victory. It wasn't stolen. It wasn't rigged. Whatever you hear from Giuliani or others, this was an authentic win. Um, you know, we again, that message hasn't come forward enough yet. Uh, it needs to come forward now and into the future so that we hope that what happens four years from now isn't a public confused and distrustful of their own electoral process. Um, you know, President Trump may run again. And I'm, you know, I'm reminded, I know not every historical example is, is, is perfectly apt, but Grover Cleveland back in the 19th century lost. He didn't claim fraud. He didn't say it was stolen. He ran again. But we, so we've never had a president who was defeated as an incumbent, try to run for reelection in four years, claiming that he was denied re-election because it was stolen and then base a re-election campaign on, you know, give me back the victory that I, was stolen from me. That's a very dangerous thing. And, and we have to figure out how we don't have a campaign four years from now run on that basis. Yes. Let me go to caller Tricia in San Francisco. Hi, Tricia. Start us off. Thanks so much. Hey, thanks so much. Yeah, I would definitely say it's been a rolling coup since he uh, was inaugurated and uh, he could still you know, claim he's whatever, president for life, hope he doesn't, um, and things are looking against him. But uh, I just want to say that there really has to be some healing of the discourse and disinformation. It's not just in the U.S., it's worldwide. And the other day there was an article in the Washington Post, uh, the headline was Trump's refusal to acknowledge defeats mir defeat mirrors the lie that fueled the Nazi rise. So we're in danger now, though the victory is pretty good for Biden. Um, but over the next two years, in before the four years, two years, four years, eight years, our primary purpose needs to be discourse, truth, and, and healing that and, and, and coming back to center to truth and finding a way to, to you know, get back to it. <laughs> yeah, Tricia, thanks. Thanks for those observations. I mean, Larry Diamond, people have used this word, coup. Is this what an attempted coup feels like? Do you think that's an accurate description of what's happened, especially as someone who I know understands the elements of a coup and that you've observed it elsewhere? I mean, how does what happened to us or is happening to us compare? Well, it doesn't compare to the Nazis. And um, I'm very sympathetic to what the last caller uh, shared with us, the concerns she raised. But um, I think unwittingly, she demonstrated part of the problem, which is that when we make analogies that sound, you know, uh, fantastic or wildly inflated, uh, we lose people and we need to bring people together rather than lose them. And so I think we can denounce this as undemocratic behavior. And yes, I think in effort um, to steal the election, uh, to, to nullify a valid and legitimate election outcome. 
I don't use words like coup uh, because those, I think, have been contaminated by Trump's hysteria. Mm -hmm. uh, and I try studiously to avoid analogies to the Nazis just because that was such an extreme example that I think when you, when you use that analogy, it sounds like you're being hysterical. And it, I, I fear that it adds to the polarization. Ned Foley, what was your reaction when the president invited Michigan state legislators to the White House? Yeah, well, I thought it was completely inappropriate. Um, like Larry, I've been asked to comment on whether that was coup-like behavior, and I've also resisted the word coup, I think, for similar reasons. So, um, you know, some people I thought wanted to label Trump a criminal and, you know, start to, you know, say that he engaged in a crime. I mean, we've heard the word sedition and treason. I, I do think um, calibrating the response is important here. Um, what was, and, and, and I did use the word stealing the result, which I think it, it was. Um, and of course, that that's pretty rhetorical in and of itself. Um, so, so we have to identify that this was a severe danger it's completely inconsistent with small d democratic norms, as Larry said. Um, and we dodged a bullet, as Larry said at the outset. Uh, on the other hand, um, I, I think overreaction is also unhelpful. As, and, and so um, it's hard to be measured. It's hard to be nuanced. But I think, I think we should try to strive for that response uh, to the given moment. So I I've condemned what President Trump did as completely inappropriate and inconsistent with our norms. I, I don't think we should get into a culture of trying to to put him in in jail for that behavior. You know, for what he for inviting the members of the Michigan legislature to the White House, that would not be a basis for I don't vindictive uh, response. I think you know let him leave the White House on January twentieth with the least amount of damage done, and then let's start rebuilding our small d democratic norms going forward. I mean, and just so that I can follow up quickly, Ned Foley, are we completely at this point out of the woods? We've avoided the worst case scenarios that you outlined two months ago, for example, of, you know, Republican state legislature sending alternative slates of electors. That's definitely not happening anywhere. Correct. I mean, I think there's absolutely no danger whatsoever uh, that, to President-elect Biden's inauguration, you know, he's, you know, I didn't think there was a danger. Even last week, I thought whatever the these um, maneuvers in the states, uh, you know, for example, if yesterday had gone differently with the state Michigan canvassing board, that would have been bad. It still would have been unsuccessful on President Trump's part to try to, you know, flip the result in Michigan and deprive the citizens of Michigan the, of their vote. So, you know, I don't think the this would was ever going to be a successful um, strategy to 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 steal a second term, but it's been terribly corrosive on the the concept of fair play. It's inconsistent with fair play, and a two party electoral competition or multi party electoral competition has to be dependent on fair play and taking turns. And so, um, so in that sense, I think we're we're out of the woods in, just in terms of the peaceful transmission of power this year, but we're not out of the woods in terms of the long-term health of our, of how we do democratic politics.
Well, Stephen writes, the biggest damage to the nation, in my opinion, is the fact that millions of Trump supporters believe that the election was stolen. This will be very corrosive to the ability of the Biden and future administrations to govern effectively and in the worst case could Mm -hmm. cause violence. And and Tess writes, I'm really worried that Trump was just a canary in the coal mine. He sussed out all the weaknesses for the next stronger, smarter guy coming down the pipe or gal. Do you have a five point plan you could submit for action to the Biden administration or department of justice. You touched on this, Larry Diamond, but you know, what kinds of structural reforms do you think we need to be able to, you mentioned some new safeguards and things to really think about that could be enforceable? Well, uh, I think the best thing uh, that the Biden administration could do would be to appoint very early on a bipartisan and nonpartisan independent commission of experts and uh, politicians, probably more likely retired, of principle and good faith uh, to look at our system and make recommendations that could be acted upon uh, legislatively. I think constitutional amendments should probably be pursued a different way. I'd be happy to have Ned Foley chair the commission, to be quite honest. But um, I think that uh, we need to fix some of the legal loopholes uh, that we have talked about. Um, I think that we should probably uh, now allocate more money uh, to the states to modernize uh, their equipment. We should have a technical panel of experts review the voting machines and explode any myths about Dominion or anybody else or confirm if there's anything to be confirmed. Uh, But I think the most important thing is to get a more rapid count like Florida had uh, so that um, we've got the best uh, equipment and um, the most rapid counting possible so we don't allow space for this kind of rumor mongering in the future. We are going to have more mail-in voting in the future. People like it. And I believe that one of the reasons we got such a high turnout perversely perversely, was not only because of the political situation, but because of COVID. And that increased mail-in voting and people found it easier to vote by mail. So how can we vote by mail as efficiently as possible with optical scanning equipment to count the mail-in ballots as efficiently as possible. I think this is another thing we should be uh, we should be focusing on. Ned Foley, what other sort of reforms or changes do you think need to be made? I mean, I was struck by GSA Administrator Emily Murphy's letter where she basically urged Congress to change the law because she didn't think an agency charged with improving federal procurement and property management should place itself above the constitutionally-based election process were her words. Sure. Well, I, I definitely agree that we need to look at the laws governing transitions because, you know, it is possible that we could again have a situation where the outcome of the election is unclear for, you know, a week or two or three, uh, whether legitimately unclear or or just because the candidate wants to take advantage of recounts that are available. Um, so I think you can you can... Uh, decouple the transition law and allowed, you know, allow both uh, campaigns to start transition-related work, even as the electoral process is 
uh, looking at a recount or something like that. So that is an area where um, rules, changing the rules might be advantageous. Um, you know, from my previous work in, on this topic, I think there's three components to reform, all of which need to be examined. You know, one are the rules themselves. And, and Larry pointed this out. We could have much better rules for uh, vote by mail. And, and we had some obstacles to putting good rules into place, unfortunately, particularly in, in Michigan and, and Pennsylvania, which delayed the counting process. So we need some rule reform there. We should look at, at institutional reforms. Um, you know, one of the questions about this Michigan canvassing board that met yesterday was that it had two Republicans and two Democrats and could deadlock in a tie that was averted, but that was the concern. You know, that was a well-intentioned um, uh, institutional arrangement, the notion of bipartisanship, that, that neither party should have an advantage. Um, but whenever you have a, you know, a four-member board like that without a tiebreaker, you run the risk of deadlock. On the other hand, look at the Secretary of State of Georgia. Again, he did a very good job this year, but we've been very worried about partisan secretaries of states in the past, you know, basically abusing their partisan background in some, you know, close election situations. Uh, that was Florida in 2000 and Ohio in 2004. So figuring out the right institutional structure uh, to handle vote counting is something that needs more attention. And then the third yeah. component is culture. Uh, we, we, we can have the best rules and the best institutions, but if people aren't willing to play by the rules and to, to act in good faith, you know, we're in trouble. And again, Ned Foley is Professor of Constitutional Law and Director of the Election Law Program at Ohio State. Larry Diamond is Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford. And you, our listeners, are with us, telling us how concerned you are about Trump's campaign post-election to try to subvert the election results. Also, do you think public trust in our electoral system has been damaged? And what do we need to do to restore that trust? We're hearing the thoughts of Ned Foley and Larry Diamond, and we want to hear from you. 866-733-6786 is the number. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also email us at forum at kqed.org, or you can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Our guests, Ned Foley and Larry Diamond's September essay, The Terrifying Inadequacy of American Election Law, foretold some of the transition chaos we're experiencing right now. And we're getting their take on the damage it's doing and how we'll move forward. And you, our listeners, are with us with your calls and comments. And let me go to Tom in Half Moon Bay. Hi, Tom. Hi, uh, Mina. Thank you very much for this program and for your guests. Um, thanks. I, I thank them for their perspectives on this. 
I do think that we have been through what is essentially an attempt at a coup. I think um, Mr. Trump is probably guilty of treason, um, but I understand the uh, political uh, impossibility of, of making that stick. However, I think it, it may be legally um, the case that he has printed, published, edit, issued, circulate, circulated, sold, distributed, and publicly displayed, written, and printed matter advocating, advising, or teaching the duty, necessity, desirability, or propriety of overthrowing, if not the government, at least the processes of government, so that under Section 2385 of the um, treason law, which I just looked up a couple of days ago, um, I think he might be actually guilty. Um, in any case, since it is impossible to, uh, to, to make that work, I think what we may need is a massive program of civics education throughout the country and uh, and maybe some also some willingness on both sides to admit what's right on the other side. I guess well, I'll, I'll leave that there. Yeah, and well, Jane agrees with you. Jane writes, do you think that civics education would improve Americans' understanding of the electoral process and how our government is intended to work? There seems to be an absence of basic civics knowledge and the public then turns to preferred news sources, which unfortunately broadcast opinions over facts. I mean, will that get at some of the cultural changes that need to be made, Larry Diamond? I am a strong believer uh, in the need to revive uh, uh, a whole new generation of civic education. And uh, Mina, not just on the substance uh, and the values of democracy and how it functions and how it should function. But also as my colleague at, in the Stanford um, School of Education, Sam Weinberg has been advocating civic education for the responsible use of social media and for being able to discriminate between fact and myth uh, and information and disinformation on social media. But this alone isn't gonna solve our problem. We live in a very polarizing era and we need institutional reforms to uh, enhance the nonpartisanship of our electoral process and to give politicians incentives to transcend or resist polarizing pressures. This is why I'm such a strong advocate of ranked choice voting, something that I know Ned Foley has also uh, been mm. very sympathetic to. Well, let me go to caller Bonnie in San Francisco. Hi, Bonnie. Hi. Um, a lot of people uh, are talking about Trump beginning a campaign for the next presidential election when he uh, is no longer in office. Uh, there's a very good chance that he's going to be indicted in New York for both civil and criminal charges by Cyrus Vance and Letitia James, and also that he could be uh, convicted and given a jail sentence. No one is talking about this. Uh, could you comment on it? 
sure, Bonnie, let me send that to Ned Foley. And also, Ned, just on a related note, Janet writes, how much of Trump's behavior is designed to provide funds to replace his election expenditures and keep the spotlight on himself rather than on actual concerns over the election? I mean, there was also some talk that he's trying to get funds <laughs> indirectly to fight his legal troubles that he could face afterwards. I mean, what do you think about the chances of criminal uh, of indictments against Trump and, and what effect could that have? Well, I, I think it is true that he can't pardon himself, uh, you know, for state level crimes. And, and so there is the we've heard about investigations in in New York state uh, that could go forward. Um, you know, I, I think I, I think when we think about the ongoing uh competition between the current Republican Party and the Democratic Party and what is essentially a two-party system. And I agree, as Larry said, I think ranked choice voting would be a big asset to kind of improve our overall political structure. Um, but if if politics is basically going to have the same um, architecture that it's had in the past, um, we need both political parties uh, to abide by a set of shared assumptions and norms. It, you know, it can't be the Democratic Party imposing its version on the other side or, or vice versa. And, you know, I think when the history of the Trump era is written, it's going to focus on him as an individual, but it is also going to focus on the Republican Party as an institution that enabled him. And, you know, the, the, there was a dynamic relationship. So even if he's not the candidate four years from now, there are Trumpian forces at work. They were at work that, that you know, that he le latched onto and that he um, aggravated, uh, but they they will continue whether he is the leader or, or not. And so as we try to improve the health of our system, we're going to have to figure out how both parties buy into a set of shared premises, uh, as the previous caller suggests. That's going to be hard work. Civics education is a part of it. It's going to happen at, have to happen at the level of the citizenry, but it's also going to have to happen at the level of the, the elected politicians themselves, the office holders. Well, Brian writes, how much more obvious is it that a two-party system is not sufficiently representing Americans? I mean, Larry Diamond, what do you think? Uh, I, yeah, I think that um, we need more choice and more competition in our political system. Uh, and this is another reason why I favor ranked choice voting, as you have in San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley, and other cities to elect a municipal government. Um, you know, if you had ranked choice voting, Green Party candidates, Libertarian Party candidates would be able to run and ask people to vote for them, independence and so on, without being spoilers. And it would generate more competition and I think more interest in elections. There's an interesting idea, it's called the Fair Representation Act, which Congressman Ro Khanna is a co-sponsor of, uh, that would institute proportional representation uh, in uh, moderately sized multi-member districts for the U.S. Congress. Now, I don't think we're going to get uh, that implemented anytime soon. Only Democrats are uh, sponsoring it, but it would make it possible for other parties uh, not only to, to run, but more likely that now and then they, they might get uh, elected. Um, 
I do think the two political parties have become complacent uh, and that they need to be tested and challenged uh, with more competition uh, that would end the spoiler problem uh, in our elections uh, so that people could think about and consider alternatives without feeling like they'd be wasting their vote. Uh, and this is a big reason why I favor ranked choice voting. Well, let me go to caller Phil in Burlingame. Hi, Phil. Hi. You know, I, I think the idea of new laws is fine, but I, I think that the biggest problem is existing laws are not being um, enforced. You know, for example, a lot of um, black folk are very concerned that we're moving back to Jim Crow with all the robocalls. And, you know, how is it legal for a senator from South Carolina or the president or anybody or, or the senators from Georgia to call the elections official and try to fire him and place pressure on him. I mean, it just seems the rule of law, you know, for example, firing the AGs and, hmm. and IGs, you know, the whole disrespect for law. How do we get back on that horse? Uh, Phil, thank, I mean, that fully, what do you think the, the actions in Georgia, I mean, could that be against the law as Phil is raising here? Yeah. So, I mean, I am worried that we are seriously backsliding with respect to our basic commitments to equal voting rights. You know, the the last half century of American democracy um, has been governed by the value of equality and fairness. Um, part of this came from the Supreme Court and a series of, of decisions that the Warren Court gave us in the 1960s. Part of it came from Congress and the Voting Rights Act in 1965. You know, I grew up in an era where we sort of took that for granted and that, you know, that measure of progress was always going to be with us. Um, it not necessarily so, unfortunately, and we, we've had, you know, the reconstruction in an earlier time after the Civil War was an effort to have equality through the 15th Amendment and so forth. But reconstruction was abandoned. And, you know, we had a whole century of Jim Crow and, and oppression. Um, you know, I certainly hope that we don't have backsliding anything like that, but we are having an erosion in our basic civil rights commitment. I think that's unfortunately undeniable. And the question is, how do we stop that erosion and and rebuild? Um, that's serious, hard, hard work. Uh, and it's going to require uh, commitments across uh, the political divide. Uh, you know, the, what worried me most about this year's election was the sense on both sides that it was the stakes were existential, right? The country wouldn't survive if the other side won. I mean, when, when you frame an election that way, you almost can't admit defeat. Um, you know, I, th I think our country is going to survive this election and we're going to move forward, but we, we have to de-escalate uh, the stakes in electoral politics and and think about how, you know, we are one country. I mean, I think part of what President-elect Biden is trying to do, and I encourage him for this, is to lower the temperature and talk about being the president of the whole country. It's going to be a challenge, but if he can kind of bring everybody along and say that he's the president for all Americans, whether you voted for him or not, he may help to to the in terms of the de-escalation, which I think is necessary. Again, Ned Foley is professor of constitutional law at Ohio State University's Moritz College of the Law. Larry Diamond is senior fellow with the Hoover Institution and the Freeman Spokely Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. And we're talking about what 
we should be doing to try to recover from this post-election period where so much has come to pass that has been of great concern in terms of its ability to erode our democracy. We're talking with you, our listeners, 866-733-6786 is the number. You can reach us on Facebook or Twitter at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Just want to read to you a few comments. Anita writes, my fear is that this attempt to steal the election will enable the GOP to object when the Democrats complain of later valid voter suppression and election fraud. Kai tweets, what's bizarre to me is how the Democrats so often seem afraid to cast themselves as the defenders of real American values. I think they need to go out and call Trump and GOP un-American for these shenanigans. I mainly raise this because this language is so often used, quote, violating norms, quote, not respecting the sanctity of the office. These aren't very effective as messaging. It really only resonates with college-educated liberals. We need something that really reaches others. And then finally, this listener writes, as an independent that voted for Biden, I wish to ask, is it possible that Republicans are just getting even with Democrats over the way they treated Trump's first victory? They immediately tried to delegitimize his victory, claiming it was due to Russian interference, Facebook posts, etc. Many congressional representatives boycotted the inauguration and openly accused Trump of collusion and treason, treason with no more evidence of that than Trump has now that there was fraud. I mean, I'm not sure about that very last line, but still, I go back to you, Ned Foley, on this only because I know you did write about how there was talk that you felt that was wrong on the Democratic side. But is what happened then and what's happening now equal? No, no, they're not equal. I mean, I do think it was inappropriate for Democrats to say that Trump didn't win when, in fact, he did win. You know, the Russia interference was also inappropriate. you know, hopefully we can get beyond finger pointing and 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 be constructive. Uh, and you know, I, I say one thing. You know, our past has not been perfect, and that can also be liberating, right? Sometimes I think Americans have too high an opinion of their own democracy. I mean, again, I want us to live in a great democracy that is true to our values, and we should always build to that. But it's not like we were always perfect and then suddenly lost it and just have to regain what we had, you know, for most of our history. Building American democracy has been a long, hard effort from the beginning. It wasn't perfect in the beginning. It wasn't perfect after the Civil War. Again, I do think we had a moment of good progress, you know, with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. We have to build on that. Um, But it is going to continue to take hard work as we continue to build. So, um, the good news there is that we've had the capacity to improve. And if if we figure out what allowed us to make those improvements in the past, maybe they'll allow us to make more improvements as we go forward. Larry Diamond, I'd like to get your response to this listener who writes, I think the piece of this puzzle that has not been filled in for me is what the Republicans who have kept silent and have been said to be afraid of Donald Trump, what are they afraid of? Is it losing constituents? Is it retaliation on the part of Donald Trump? And if that's the case, what does that look like? So we know what they're afraid of. That's a very easy question to answer. They are afraid that Donald Trump will turn on them and support a more slavishly loyal opponent uh, to them uh, that is slavishly loyal to Trump, uh, uh, rival to them in the next Republican primary, whether it's a Republican primary to reelect them to the House or a Republican primary to reelect them to the Senate. And these primaries 
uh, Mina, have very low turnout. Often you only get 20% of voters turning out in the primary. Uh, and then they're done. They're cooked because, you know, in about 46 states in the United States, we have the sore loser rule. And if you lose a primary, you're not even allowed to be on the uh, ballot in the general election. So we need to give um, uh, candidates another path to reelection uh, that would circumvent uh, this perverse polarizing dynamic of the need to be nominated in low turnout partisan primaries. One possibility that Alaska just adopted uh, by voter initiative is ranked choice voting with top four. So the top four candidates would run in a blanket primary like the one we have in California, but it would send four candidates to the general election and then ranked choice voting would be used in the general election. If we keep our current system, I think we have to have um, rank uh, partisan primaries. We need ranked choice voting uh, to enable um, people to consider other candidates in November. And we need to get rid of the sore loser rule. So if a candidate loses a low turnout partisan primary, they can come back and run as an independent in the general election. That might give a little more backbone to some of these Republican members of Congress. Well, you know, we have 30 seconds or so left, Ned Foley, and I wonder just what what you think about Biden's ability to govern when the legitimacy of his presidency is called into question by a, a, a portion, a, a significant portion of the country, and, you know, where your optimism lies. Yes, well, that's where I think the work is not yet finished. You know, not every senator has spoken yet. Senator McConnell, I don't believe, has spoken in, you know, in the last day or so. And so we need more senators to authenticate President-elect Biden's victory so that he can take office on January 20th with the mantle that he, he earned it. It wasn't just that he was there, but he actually earned his place in the White House. Ned Foley of Ohio State University and Larry Diamond of the Hoover Institution and the Freeman Spogli Institute at Stanford. Thanks both of you for coming on. Thanks also to our listeners for their questions, their reflections and their concerns. And I'm thankful to Susan Britton for producing today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Thanks for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.